0: Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now I present to you Brother Chris Ludke. Listeners, scholars, brothers, this is Brother Chris and Today, I want to explore the brazen pillars. Now, when we talk about the brazen pillars, we are dealing with something that we see in lodges all the time, these representations of two pillars, frequently with some kind of globe that tends to fall off when they're moved, giving several brothers concussions. But leaving that aside, let's get into the brazen pillars. Most of us look on representation of two brazen pillars at all meetings. Some are famous for causing concussions when moved, as previously stated, but what do they actually mean? Are they accurate? What purpose do they serve? Today, I want to explore this idea and want to start from a rare secular account of their appearance from your friend and mine, the Roman historian Josephus. Now, of course. Before I get into Josephus, we will be dealing with some biblical accounts as well. We don't have a lot written about the columns themselves or a lot written about Solomon's temple outside of biblical history. But when we have something, we should look at it. So Josephus, writing in Antiquities, Book 8, Chapter 3, Section 4, and I'm using the William Whiston translation. And he says, quote, Now Solomon sent for an artificer from Tyre, whose name was Hiram. He was by birth of a tribe of Naphtali on the mother's side, for she was of that tribe. But his father was Ur, in other words, from Mesopotamia. Think modern-day Iraq. Of the stock of the Israelites. The man was skillful in all sorts of work, but his chief skill lay in working in gold, silver, and brass. He was a metalsmith by whom were made all the mechanical works about the temple, according to the will of Solomon. Moreover, this Hiram made two hollow pillars, whose outsides were of brass. The thickness of the brass was four finger breadths, so give or take three, four inches. And the height of the pillars was 18 cubits, their circumference 12 cubits. But there were cast with each chapters, consisting of lily work that stood upon the pillar, and it was elevated five cubits, round about which there were network interwoven with small palms made of brass and covering the lily work. To this were hung 200 pomegranates in two rows. The one of the pillars he set at the entrance the porch on the right hand had a name, the one on the left another name. So, this is Josephus, and couple of things are going to stand out first of all that hey the measurements don't add up 18 cubits obviously is very different from 35 but it does give us some idea and we can see that he's definitely using some biblical sources there which makes sense josephus is writing around just after the time of jesus whereas the temple of course is about a thousand years earlier so in terms of sources what am i looking at i'm looking at studies of the phoenicians I'm looking at my own background in art history, uh, specifically with different columns and globes. I'm looking at the Jerusalem Bible, the Jerusalem translation of the Bible. I'm, of course, looking at Josephus. I'm looking at the Dictionary of Symbols by Lingaman. I'm looking at the Origin of Sacred Numbers by Brinton. And I'm looking at Worshipful Brother Todd Crone's article, Brazen Pillars from the Masonic Study Series, Volume 1, Issue 8. From April of 2016, I'm using some other sources as well, but these are the major ones that are acting throughout. So let's start with history. Of course, we always have to start with history, and the Phoenicians have this tra- have this tradition of placing two columns outside the entrance of their temples, typically one on either side of a short staircase used to enter the cella. The cella being the main temple structure; it's the enclosed building in which the deity appears. We see the use of one gold and one emerald or jewel studded column at the Temple of Melqart in Tyre. Also at the Temple of Jupiter in Baalbek we see two temples, two columns, excuse me. And at Endara is thought there were also two columns, one of stone, one of wood. Now, first of all, why the Phoenicians? Well, the Israelites, when they're building Solomon's temple, have only existed as a people in that area for uh, one to two hundred years. They don't have enough time to develop an artistic tradition. We see the same thing from the Greeks when they first form. We see the same thing from Islam when it first forms. Uh, The Byzantine, of course, borrowing from the Romans. The Romans borrowing from pretty much everyone. Any society does the same thing. And the Phoenicians are going to be the major people. After all, we see Hiram who is a Phoenician king, king of Tyre, being involved in the construction of Solomon's temple. And so Phoenician influence is going to be very important. So, the Phoenicians put these two columns up. In terms of function, they may have been symbolic, but they also may have been used to support a covering for a porch, and they may have actually been both. So, both symbolic and pragmatic which makes sense. We see a lot of that in the ancient world. We still see a lot of debate amongst scholars about whether or not these held a covering, what they might have looked like. We know the materials, but we don't necessarily know what the Phoenician columns might have looked like, although I will explore that shortly. In terms of material, we are told they are brazen columns, which means they are brass. Now, brass is slightly harder than bronze, They would be massive, they would be heavy, and they're very, very symbolic. So that's going to be important. Brass has a symbolism to it. Not only is it valuable in the ancient world, but in the Bible, brass symbolizes strength and durability, something that you would want as the foundation of what is, in effect, a new religious practice and is used to create objects for worship, as implied in Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2. Additionally, brass also symbolizes judgment, something that we see in monotheistic religions, because if you have a single god, usually there's an element of judgment, and is associated with the feet of the glorified Jesus in Revelation, which is often interpreted as a symbol of his righteous judgment. So again, those ideas of Judgment, stability, strength, establishment, some might say. It's crucial to note brass and bronze are sometimes used interchangeably in many translations of the Bible, but in the original Hebrew and Greek languages, they did use two different words. Remember, many of the translations that we have are based on other translations, sometimes going back four, five, six translations. Almost all of them, for example, go through St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Let's talk about size and numbers. We are told that these columns are 40 cubits in all. So, first question, what is a cubit? Well, in most Eastern Mediterranean traditions, a cubit is equal to the forearm and hand, or between 18 and 22 inches. As a side note, the way that this works is not that every uh, workman uses that measure, It's that that measure will be standardized in what's called a meteorological stone, often carved into the side of the temple or structure that they're building. We find these in ancient Greece, for example, these uh, meteorological stones in the temples. Usually they're polished out at the end so that they no longer exist. And they standardize those measures for that specific building. But those measures are not the same when you move from building to building. So we're looking between 18 and 22 inches, so the columns are somewhere between 60 and 70 feet tall. This is unlikely based on archaeological evidence. Most temples at the time are going to be in the 30-foot range, and the numbers that Josephus gives us gives us a number of somewhere between 27 and 33 feet, which would have been much more likely. So why would someone like Preston come in and make it 40 cubits? To answer this, we have to look briefly at sacred numbers. What are sacred numbers? Well, many cultures and religions have numbers that they consider particularly important, particularly sacred, and they always have a meaning apart from the number. So a few examples. In Christianity, the number three is considered sacred because it's associated with the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Judaism, the number seven is considered sacred because it's associated with the seven days of creation in the book of Genesis. In Hinduism, the number 108 is considered sacred because it is said to represent 108 beads on the mala or prayer beads, which are used during meditation and prayer. Same in Buddhism. In Islam, the number 99 is considered sacred because it is a number of the number of names for God in the Quran. In Christianity, we have numbers like 3, 12, 40, 144, 72. All are going to be important sacred numbers, and all of which are used in architecture, specifically for cathedrals and churches, through the medieval, the renaissance, and the baroque, taking us up to the 18th century. So why 40? Let's start with that. Why 40 cubits in height? Well, 40 is a biblical sacred number. It is equal to a generation of man, a long time, or in this case, a very large column. In other words, they're not saying it's 40 cubits. They're saying that it is particularly large, which makes sense because I want to get across the size of these columns compared to a human standing in front of them. And to a human standing in front of it, a column that is going to be four cubits in diameter, so eight cubits, uh, sorry, four cubits across, or what is that, about six feet across, but then it's going to be 30 feet tall based on Josephus. That's going to be an impressively large structure. What about 12? We're told that it has a circumference of 12 cubits. Well, biblical and Western uh, traditions give us 12 as a sacred number, referring to close fellowship. This is the biblical. There are 12 disciples Amongst or 12 apostles amongst the disciples. There are 72 followers of Jesus in some accounts, but there are 12 close followers, of course, the 13th being Judas. We see the idea of enlightenment and perfection, i.e. the perfect number divisible by both three and four. In medieval Europe, as well as a time as we get into the 15th, 16th century where these things are starting to be written about, these traditions of the ritual are being developed, we see that this is a product of the secular and the sacred. Three, referring to sacred. Four, referring to secular. Perfection. So sort of an all overarching perfection. Uh, So brotherhood and perfection in the number 12. Why four? Of course, four cubits in diameter. Well, According to biblical numerology and Western sacred numbers, four is a number that represents support and stability. According to the Pythagoreans, the Greeks, it is the most perfect number because it is stable. It is foundational. Of course, these columns would have been seen that way. This is the representation, the idea behind the temple itself. Let's talk about the chapters. Again, unlikely historically accurate. Let's talk about columns for a minute. Likely, based on evidence from the Phoenicians, their columns would have been more similar to Minoan or Mycenaean columns, both of which would be in existence up until around 1200 to 1000 BCE in the eastern Mediterranean. And these columns usually have an onion sort of form top with a column that is smooth, not fluted, or a simple scroll top. the columns. When we look at the Persians from roughly the same period, we're going to see very simple bull shapes. Uh, Bull is in the animal. Egyptians at the time, of course, just to the south of Solomon's temple, maintain botanical motifs, generally reeds, papyrus, or lotus, but they do not tend to mix motifs. Even the Greeks, 600 years later, Keep things simple with the Doric ring, in other words, that very simple capital, the Ionic scroll, or the Corinthian acanthus, in other words, floral leafwork around the top of the column. Instead, I would argue this is probably another veiled lesson. This is another allegory that we see referenced in the Bible and in Josephus, but likely would not have actually been there for Solomon's temple. And basically what it's saying is ignore the column and focus on peace, unity, and plenty, which are very important terms, very important ideas when we look at masonry. They're defining effectively the benefits of brotherhood. Unity is brotherhood. Brotherhood brings peace because if everyone's working in harmony, it's going to be peaceful. And due to the industry of brotherhood, we will see plenty. Let's look at the globes. Uh, in terms of history, the fact that the Earth is round or spherical is established by the Greeks in the 3rd century BC, so shortly after the height of Athens, etc. And the earliest terrestrial globe will appear in roughly that period. The earliest known example that's written about is created by Crates of Malayas. and this is going to be in Turkey in roughly the mid-2nd century BCE. There are no terrestrial globes from antiquity in existence. But we know that they were in existence. We have an example, a surviving example, from roughly the 2nd century AD or CE that turns up, it's called the Farnes uh, Atlas, and we find it in Naples at the Archaeological Museum in Italy. Early terrestrial globes will depict the entirety of the Old World, and these will also be constructed in the Islamic world. We're going to see them regularly there during the Middle Ages in Christian Europe. While there are their writings alluding to the idea that the Earth was spherical, we don't see globes. The earliest terrestrial globe that we still have in existence is from 1492, as made by Martin Behaim. Uh, so we don't see globes around 1000 BCE when the temple is erected but I should say just because they don't have globes they know the earth is round because all you have to do is go to sea if you go to sea beyond the line of the horizon where you can't see the horizon and then you come up to land you'll notice that the land rises it doesn't start tiny and simply get larger and so anyone who's gone to sea will know immediately that the earth is round they may not be able to prove it but they know it to be the case We know that ancient societies, going back to the Sumerians, Mesopotamians, etc., are aware that the earth is round. It takes the Greeks to prove it, and to give us the dimensions. So, the idea of the globes likely come from later invention, and the increasing popularity of the globe in the 15th and 16th centuries, as well as through the Enlightenment, when this lecture is going to be formed, especially around 1723, these globes are going to be seen as a sign of education, a sign of prestige, you want this sort of thing in your home. So, the globe's meaning, the way to interpret it, would be to look at masonry universal, the universal brotherhood of man. Think of the larger world, not yourself. In other words, we live to serve society. Society does not live, live to serve us. So, it becomes a symbol of the larger community, the larger society in which we must exist. They are symbols of creation, that uh, one must adore the glorious works of their creator and become symbols of the study of the liberal arts and the general improvement of the mind. In other words, self-improve, brother. Work on yourself. So in terms of overall meaning, when you see these two brazen pillars, we see the idea of duality. And duality and deity is really common at the time. It's a developing idea when we're around 1200 BCE to around 1000 BCE, this time when the Israelites are really developing. Often, this is cited as the meaning behind Phoenician examples. So, oftentimes, they're looking at gods and they see gods in pairs. So, not necessarily relationships, but pairs where they offset in some way. Also, at the same time, we see the rise of the Zoroastrians in Persia, Iraq, Iran, etc. around 1200 BCE, around the same time. And there we see the idea of good versus evil, etc. This duality within human existence. And this usually refers to balance in some form, or the struggle of life. Now, to take it one step further, according to Worshipful Brother Todd Crone in his article Brazen Pillars, both Cloudy in his Introduction to Masonry Freemasonry, Fellowcraft Edition, and Roberts in his book the craft and its symbols allude to another interpretation. They speak of one denoting strength or power, the other denoting choice or control. Robert says, quote, if you pass these pillars with understanding, if you realize that power without control is dangerous, you have learned the lesson taught by the symbolism of pillars. Of the pillars. Cloudy says: before him are spread the two great essentials of all success, all greatness, all happiness. Like any other power, temporal or physical, religious or spiritual, Freemasonry can be used well or for ill. Here's the lesson set before the fellowcraft, coined Cloudy. If he, like David, would have his kingdom of Mesach manhood established in strength, he must pass between the pillars with understanding that power without control is useless and control without power is futile. He, Cloudy, goes on to illustrate that fire helps cook our food and creates steam and heat for good but also can burn down houses and forests. Dynamite, while helpful in building tunnels and clearing stumps, also maims and kills. We have all heard this idea of with great power comes great responsibility. By the way, that goes back to Spider-Man. But this may be, for many, a new way of looking at the meaning of the brazen pillars, But is one that has many real-world applications. How often do we read about big business, politics, and countries who abuse power for their own gain? How who do you know at work or in your community could benefit from this principle? Balance, the middle way. And it's a theme that we've hit on with a number of different ideas in Freemasonry and on this podcast. It's not surprising that we get this illustration of balance, this reminder of balance from the EA as we enter into the fellowcraft. So, as you have seen, there are many ways of interpreting the brazen pillars. And by the way, there are more, but in the interest of time, I'm trying to keep it to a couple of simpler ones. I may come back to interpretation specifically later on in another episode. As can, the candidate stands amount the Amid the pillars and reconciles the duality, so too must each person interpret the symbols in a way that resonates with their own life journey. We are all vast enough to contain within us all of duality. It is our duty as Masons to find that balance within us that allows us to be the best version of ourselves for our fellow man, our families, and our communities. Well, brothers... Thank you for joining me, Brother Chris Lickie, and the entire Further Light team on your quest to find more light through Masonry. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org to learn more about Masonry and access further educational content and more light. Once again, that address is wimasons.org. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at education at wisconsinmasons.org. And thank you for listening.